Hello and welcome to the Ghosts and Folklore podcast. I'm Mark Rice, and on each episode I investigate a different, weird and wonderful subject. And on this episode we are going to take a look at the curse that affected Wales's national sports stadium, the curse of the Millennium Stadium. So this is going to be something of a sporty episode, which are words I never thought I would say on this podcast, but this is this is going to be the sports episode, but of course with just as much weirdness as usual. This is still a podcast about ghosts and folklore, but with an added sporty element for this episode. And as mentioned, we are going to take a look at this curse which was affecting the Millennium Stadium. The cursed changing room of Wales's national sporting stadium and how the bosses attempted to banish this jinx in quite an unorthodox way. They didn't turn to an exorcist or somebody with some experience in trying to clear away this evil energy. Instead, they turned to the world's richest painter. Yes, the world's richest painter was called in to try and lift a curse from a sports stadium. Now, this curse was focused on one particular changing room in the South, which meant any team unfortunate enough to be stationed there would lose their match. And this didn't happen just once or twice. It happened three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. It was into double figures in every major game. Whoever was in that room would lose. And the Stoke Sentinel newspaper actually printed the odds on the chances of this happening. And it's incredible. But up until the point we are talking about, the odds of that many teams losing in a row from the same changing room was 8,000 to 1. And I am not a gambler, and I do not condone gambling in any shape or form. But just imagine having an accumulative bet on that one. But the odds were 8,000 to 1 of this happening. And so in the end, out of desperation, they turned to somebody, anyone, to try and remove this jinx. And that is how they found a multi-millionaire painter. Now, the reason I've chosen to look at this subject on this episode... Well, not, not that I need an excuse to talk about curses and things. I've done loads of episodes on curses. You can go back and listen to the curse of the Swansea Devil, for example. But the reason I've chosen this now is, as you might have noticed, international rugby, after a few months away, is back. And being a Welsh podcast, rugby is something of a big deal for this country. Rugby is back. International rugby is back. We are looking at the curse at the home of Welsh rugby, although in fairness, this curse actually affected more football teams than rugby teams, and really, it affected English football teams more than Welsh teams. Because this begins in 1999, when the stadium first opened its doors for the Rugby World Cup. But then after that, for the next few years, it hosted all of the big games in English football, 
because Wembley Stadium, where they would have been played, was closed. So all of the cup finals, all the FA Cup finals and the the other one, the Worthington's Cup, as it was called then, and all of the playoff finals. So a lot of big, important games were played in Wales at the Millennium Stadium instead of the headquarters of English football in Wembley. Now, it all kicked off in 1999 with the Rugby World Cup. And then, as the years went by and they noticed that teams kept losing if they were stationed in this particular room, that they turned to a Feng Shui expert to begin with in 2002. So after three years of repeated misfortune, they finally looked for help. And the game which finally turned it for them, which I believe was the 10th football game in a row to go this way was when Spurs, Tottenham Hotspurs were beaten 2-1 by Blackburn in the League Cup final, in the Worthington Cup final. So Spurs certainly know firsthand all about this curse. And as mentioned, they were the 10th football team in a row to lose. And Spurs were not the only high-profile Premier League team to lose there. Their arch-rivals Arsenal also lost after being stationed in that room, although in their case, they would then go on to beat Chelsea when they were stationed in the other room, and it was Chelsea's turn to get the cursed room. So all three of these big London clubs were among the teams who missed out on football glory due, so it was said, to this cursed room. So this Feng Shui expert from Nottingham was called in to try and save the day. Or to try and clear the jinx, as the management at the stadium were calling it at the time. And what I'd like to do is to read a statement out from the stadium chiefs at the time of employing the Feng Shui expert called Paul Darby, a 52-year-old, or 52 at the time, who was based in Nottingham and was a doctor in the Chinese art, according to the BBC. And the quote, and this quote was backed up by the Football League, so the Football League were all forgetting this curse lifted as well. And the statement was, The unlucky South dressing room will be given the full Feng Shui treatment ahead of the Football League's LDV Vans trophy final between Blackpool and Cambridge on Sunday. So they finally decided to try and do something to lift this jinx ahead of the game between Blackpool and Cambridge. So how did this Feng Shui expert, how did Mr. Darby go about lifting this curse? Well, again, I'm quoting from the BBC for this one. And they say the ceremony will involve the scattering of incense and sea salt, redecorating the room, lighting candles and Buddhist chanting. And he pointed out himself, the Feng Shui expert pointed out that he wasn't trying to make Cambridge win. They weren't biased against Blackpool. They were just trying to redress the balance so everything was fair. Now, maybe if you were from Blackpool, you might have thought that was quite unfair that you weren't given the same Buddhist chanted that uh, Cambridge were being given. But nevertheless, that's how they set up beforehand. And It didn't make any difference anyway because Blackpool won. Quite convincingly, in the end, it was was a bit of a hammering. 4-1 
in the end. And again, according to the news reports, it was their first domestic trophy since 1953 when they convincingly lifted the LDV Vans trophy. So after trying to redress the balance they actually ended up giving the opposing team their first major trophy in nearly half a century. But when I say it failed, I am being slightly unfair there because Mr. Darby did point something out before the game took place and he said that he believed these bad vibes or whatever you want to call them, wherever this jinx was coming from, was caused by the press box. Now, that's not a, a personal attack on, on journalists like me, but rather the positioning of the press box in the stadium. And he said, we actually found there was a big problem with the dressing room because of the press room. All the cables and lights in the interview room are affecting the energy of the dressing room. So what he's saying is the proximity of all these journalists in this room full of lights and cables and all the, the, the fancy stuff they need to conduct their interviews was interfering with the, the, the aura, I guess, whatever you want to call the feeling that was in that room. And while his initial solution, as we spoke about, the ringing bells and carrying incense sticks and throwing sea salt about was to, quote, just to zing up the energy... Long term, he did say the answer would be to paint the walls with a bright colour to act as a protection. And he did also ask the Cambridge fans to wear bright colours on the day. He suggested reds and purples. Now, we know that didn't do them much good for that game. But afterwards, before the next major game, they decided to investigate this theory of painting the walls with a bright colour. And they did that by employing, as mentioned, the world's richest painter, who I imagine most people listening to this podcast are probably not aware of. And if I asked you to think who the world's richest painter was at around 2002 when he was employed to do this job, I think most people might think of maybe Damien Hirst or one of the, the, the young British artists who caused all that, that fuss in the 90s and, and made a lot of money on the back of it. Maybe Jeff Koons with those, those balloon dogs that everyone is familiar with now. Or maybe somebody slightly older, maybe from the pop art generation, someone like David Hockney, who is still going strong, or Jasper Johns. One of these names you might consider to be the richest artists in the world. But no, in fact, the richest artist in the world, apparently, was Welsh. It was a Welshman. Not only that, he was from Port Talbot. He's from the same town as me. This painter from Port Talbot was the richest painter in the world. And in fact, he was called, although he often called himself this, but he was called the king of painters and painter of kings. And he was certainly a painter of kings. And his name was Andrew Vacari. Now, Andrew Vacari is a name I imagine a lot of Welsh people are not familiar with. And as I mentioned, he is from Port Albert, like myself, and I imagine a lot of people in Port Talbot are not familiar with his work. 
And yet, to begin with, he was firmly rooted in the Welsh art scene. He went to Swansea School of Art before heading off to the Slade in London where he he met the likes of Francis Bacon and Lucian Freud and he even won a gold medal in the Eisteddfod. So this isn't somebody who, who was not involved in the Welsh art scene at all and yet his millions came, his big money came from Saudi Arabia. He completed some incredible commissions for the Saudi royal family, for the king of Saudi Arabia. And that is why he might not be that well known in his homeland, and yet elsewhere in the world he is revered. And just to sort of illustrate this, at the time of this commission in 2002, his home was in France, where he lived in Pablo Picasso's former house. So anyone who's got the money to buy Pablo Picasso's former house isn't doing too badly for himself. And one of my big regrets, and I'm, I'm going off on a very quick tangent here, but I, I've interviewed a lot of Welsh artists, and I never had the opportunity to speak to Andrew Vicari directly, but on more than one occasion, I did set up an interview. And on the last attempt, he was actually staying in the Castle Hotel in Neath. And for whatever reason, he, he cancelled on me last minute. And sadly, he died quite soon afterwards. And I just wish, wish, wish that that meeting could have happened. But in a spooky coincidence, that very pub, the Castle Hotel in Neath, is going to feature on this podcast, on a Christmas episode of this podcast next month. So that's a nice little Easter egg for regular listeners to listen out for next month when the Castle Hotel pops up. So just to recap very quickly the point we've reached now, more than 10 football teams in a row have lost major games after being in that changing room. The next big game is coming up. This Feng Shui expert believes that room needs some kind of colour, some kind of spark on the wall to defeat that jinx. And so a week before Brentford face off against Stoke City in the Football League Second Division playoff final on the 11th of May 2002, Andrew Vicari is called in to save the day and to paint a mural on the wall of his homeland's national stadium. And so he heads to the Millennium Stadium and I should point out quickly that I am referring to the stadium as the Millennium Stadium throughout. It has changed its name since to the Principality Stadium, but I'm going to use Millennium for for two reasons, really. The first one is that this takes place in 2002, and back then it was called the Millennium Stadium. The second reason is I think the Principality is a god-awful, terrible name for a stadium, and I just don't like saying it, so I am going to stick with Millennium. Now, Vicari went along a week before the game, and what I'd like to do is to quote again from a different BBC article. And they say the multi-millionaire Andrew Vicari painted a red mural for free on the wall of the, inverted commas, Room of Doom, after stadium chiefs took the advice of a Feng Shui expert. Vicari, 63, took just an hour to cover 
the white wall of the unlucky room with fiery images of the sun, a galloping horse, and a legendary phoenix bird rising from the ashes. The wealthy artist, who lives in Picasso's house in the south of France, as I already mentioned, believed the mystical painting could help break the hoodoo. And after finishing this mural, this seven-foot mural, which is called the Firewall, the Kari returned to the stadium to watch that game himself, to watch Brentford taking on Stoke. And I imagine he was cheering on Stoke because that would mean his mural had worked. Now, as with other works of art that I talk about on this podcast, it's always good to have a look on the internet if you are able to. But if not, don't worry, because you know, I've described the elements there. And bear in mind, this Feng Shui expert suggested it needed that burst of colour. The, the, these strong reds and yellows and oranges which, were, which infused the scene. And his choice of a horse and a sun, and most obviously the phoenix, definitely suggests his, his, his thinking process of to beat this jinx with symbols of, of rising, literally rising, especially in the case of the sun and with the phoenix. But I think this also harks back to the Middle East. This is an artist, yes, he might have been a Welsh artist, but he painted, what, hundreds of works of art for the Middle East. And I think you can, you can feel that power in this image. It's a strong, striking mural, and my my only problem with it is the fact that it's hidden away and not more readily available for other people to see. But there you go, I guess that would defeat the whole point of it, I guess, and that there would be no point him doing it. So anyway, he painted this wonderful mural infused with what I think are strong Middle Eastern influences and certainly a lot of a lot of fire and a lot of heat to it. And Stoke came to Wales, Stoke went into that south changing room and prepared to face off against Brentford. And the prize would be promotion to what we now call League One. And when that fateful day arrived on 11th of May 2002, after everything Derby had tried beforehand, even apparently leading a horse around the pitch, but leading the horse around the pitch, ringing bells and burning and sprinkling incense, the whole lot, nothing had worked. This was it. They'd called in the big guns, or the big gun, in Andrew Vaccari, the world's richest painter, at the time, according to a Stoke newspaper, Britain's 18th richest person, never mind painters, Britain's 18th richest person had painted this on the wall to try and help get Stoke promoted. Although, as Darby mentioned earlier, they were just trying to redress the balance, I guess, rather than picking favourites. But nevertheless, I think it's safe to say almost everyone involved at the stadium were rooting for Stoke on that day. And, spoiler alert... It worked. Stoke won. Stoke beat Brentford 2-0 and the curse was broken thanks to a Feng Shui expert from Nottingham and the world's richest painter from Port Talbot. And speaking afterwards to the press, maybe in that press room which was causing all the trouble, but speaking after the game, Vicari said that he thought Stoke were the better team. But I think, 
I can claim some credit for banishing the losing streak once and for all. I've never painted on Breeze Block before, but it was well worth it to lift the curse that has blighted this beautiful stadium. And so those ridiculous odds, 8,000 to 1 chance of that happening, finally came to an end. And I imagine any gamblers who thought they had an easy bet on that one, they knew exactly who was going to lose, were, were cursing Andrew Vicari themselves afterwards. And well, as were Brentford possibly as well. And talking afterwards... The Stoke boss mentioned that he also looked for some divine inspiration and he was very much looking to the Christian God to smile down on his team that day. And again, quoting from the Stoke newspaper where they say the Stoke manager arrived early and slightly ironically, or embarrassingly rather, Vicari had no idea who he was or what he was trying to do in that room. I think he thought he was just a member of staff at the stadium who just wandered in, but nevertheless, he explained who he was, and he sat in the changing room on his own, and while there, and I'll quote, he says, During the warm-up, before the game, I was there on my own, and I just spoke to the Almighty in the dressing room. I think he must have listened. I just looked forward to breaking the curse and was very pleased to get the South dressing room. Well, I mean, maybe it's easy for him to say afterwards. If he'd lost, maybe he wouldn't have been so happy. But yes, he he was in there alone. He prayed to God. And also, another little bit of maybe, maybe you could call it superstition, is that when he booked the hotel for the club, he booked the hotel that had only been used by winners. Maybe that, maybe that helped as well. And the skipper, the Stoke captain, is also quoted, Peter Handyside, and he said that the curse was discussed, but these curses are there to be broken. Even after an 8,000 to 1 chance, they are there to be broken. And he carried on, he continued to say, it might have been playing on the Brentford mines as well, because they had to maintain the record but it didn't concern us. So there's a nice little bit of, of reverse psychology from Peter there. Maybe Brentford actually felt more pressure because Stoke were in the cursed room. They had nothing to lose. They had a ready-made excuse almost. Brentford had nothing to fall back on. And again, maybe this is just another little sign that fate was in the air, but it turns out Stoke's last game before that final, just a few days before, was against Cardiff, against the very city where they broke the curse, and they beat Cardiff at Ninian Park. They knocked Cardiff out of the playoff finals. As a result, took their place, and, well, the rest is history. Now, as I record this, sporting events, be it football or rugby or cricket or badminton or curling or whatever sport you watch but things are a bit strange at the moment and who knows maybe by the time i upload this things might have changed but i imagine most people are not able to go and watch live sport at the moment but i'd love to know if you have any past experiences with anything weird 
at a stadium or in a field even. If you have any strange sporting stories from Wales or from the world, maybe you've seen a, a ghostly runner doing a 100-mile sprint or a, well, 100 miles, but that, that would be one hell of a paranormal sprint, wouldn't it? A 100-metre sprint, rather, or a 100-mile sprint, whichever one, or anything at all. It's always great to hear from people, so please... Get in touch, even if it's just to say hello. You can track me down on my website, and the website has a contact page with links to all of my social media profiles. I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram, so please track me down, give me a, a like or a follow or whatever it is on that particular platform, and we can talk about this further on social media. And we are nearing the end of this episode. Not quite, but we are nearing the end. So it's that point of the episode where I like to shamelessly give a shout out to subscribing. But if you have enjoyed this episode, as always, please consider hitting the subscribe button. It's great for you because that way you will never miss any of my ghost stories and folklore stories and cursed football stadium stories or, or rugby stadium stories, wherever it might be. Uh, and it's great for me because I know people are listening and enjoying and it's worth making more of these things. All of which brings me to the grand finale of this episode. And I've been thinking about how the best way to wrap up an episode like this would be. And I thought, well, we've spoken all about the Millennium Stadium. And how it is the home of Welsh rugby. It, it was the home of Welsh football for a while and then it went a bit wobbly. But certainly I think most people when they think of it would think of international games of rugby. And I thought well what better way to wrap up an episode like this than to ask you all to join me in standing for the national anthem. And before we do that, I'd just like to quickly say that I've been Mark Rees. This has been my Ghosts and Folklore podcast. It's the best. It's the beautiful. It's the only Ghosts and Folklore podcast beaming to you from Wales to the world. And now it's time for the world's finest national anthem Hain Wlad van Hadai Land of My Fathers and for this wonderful piano version I need to give full credit to Ken Torion who uploaded this onto the internet with a Creative Commons license which allows people like me to use it so thank you very much Ken Torion for letting me use this wonderful piece of music and if you'd like to use it yourself there will be a link to it on my website and on that note it just leaves me to say thank you very much for listening Diolchen Varian am Grando if you know the words even if it's just the glad 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 bit but if you know the words sing along no star. <laughs>